0: Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moya's Jiwa. Imagine you're in your forties, fit and healthy and well, and one day you feel dreadful. Months go by and doctors can't tell you what's wrong with you. And then one day you receive a diagnosis that suggests that you have months to live. Dana Dayton was exactly such a person. And it is my honor to interview her today to tell us what happened next and what we can learn from her experience. You're very welcome to the show, Dana Dayton. We're absolutely thrilled to be speaking with you. I want to start this conversation on the day before you became ill. What was life like for you before all of this happened?
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. There were a lot of things that I was doing before I became ill, I'm going to give you the long story because it all adds up to the diagnosis, but it took a really long time to get to. So I've always been a very active person. I've exercised every day of my life since I can remember, and I enjoy it. I love being outside and running and hiking and biking and everything else. And I spent most of my career at National Geographic, which afforded me some wonderful travel experiences. And in the summer of 2012, I went to Montana to Glacier National Park, which was just a dream come true. I didn't you know, know if I would ever get there, but my job took me there. And we hiked up to the high passes. It was July, but there was still snow on the ground. So anyway, I was doing a lot of hiking and I definitely started to feel sore. And I wasn't sure why. I thought maybe it was the altitude. Maybe it was just the inclination that I wasn't used to because I'm from the East Coast. So I didn't really think anything of it. And I went home and I figured that it would abate and nothing would come of it. And it kind of did abate a little bit. The stiffness went away, but there was still some of it. And all of a sudden I noticed a rash, not only across my face, but on the back of my neck. And I had some weird splotchiness in other parts of my body. And one morning I woke up, it was sort of very early in the morning at like 4 or 5 a.m. with just searing knife-like pain in my joints, my wrist, my elbows, my fingers. And I couldn't imagine what it was, but it, for a person that had never taken more than two ibuprofens in her life, I didn't know what to do. I took the two ibuprofen, I chased them with Tylenol, and nothing happened. It was still extremely uncomfortable. I could barely walk. I could barely get out of bed. And I started to Google things, which of course is never the best idea. And all roads sort of led to lupus. And sure enough, you know, I had the malar rash that was presenting and I thought, that's what it is. And it was extremely scary and disheartening because I knew just enough about lupus to be frightened. And I knew that with three young kids, it could really change the way I Was a mom and changed the way I led my life and maybe stopped some of my outdoor activity. And I I was really quite scared. So I quickly found several rheumatologists. I knew it was important to find the best doctors. And one said, Yep, for sure. Your ANA panel looks like lupus. And we're going to start you on hydrochloroquine, which is, of course, the medicine that's had a lot of uh, exposure during COVID. And another, a rheumatologist said, You know, maybe it looks like maybe pre lupus. Don't worry, it might fade away. It could have been some, from something funny you ate. It could have been from a bug bite. Maybe we should even re-check, recheck for Lyme's disease. And then another rheumatologist said, No, I really don't think that's what it is. Like it's probably just a little old age, a little arthritis, something like that. And my kids at that time were about seven, nine, and 10 in that area. And so I was just panicked. But I decided that I would stick with the rheumatologist that said, let's try the, the hydrochloroquine. And it actually started to help a little bit. It really did relieve some of the symptoms. I continued to work and travel and do things at school with my kids. And uh, fast forward about six months later or so, I noticed that I was just tired all the time. I couldn't sit up at the kitchen table after dinner time to help my kids do homework. My midsection just really was uncomfortable like my back hurt, my belly hurt and I had to go lay down on the living room floor just to sort of distribute some of the discomfort. And once again, the acetaminophen and the ibuprofen really wasn't touching it. And again, I was just really perplexed because I had never had any physical issues before. I also knew enough that I was quite certain it wasn't uh, like a uh, abdominal like a, a gastric problem down low because Even at that young age, I had had several colonoscopies because I had lost my mom to colon cancer several years ago. And I did everything possible to make sure that I didn't follow in her footsteps. So I had routine checkups to make sure that colon cancer wasn't going to be in my future. So I went to my gastroenterologist and she said, you know what, you really don't need another colonoscopy. You just had one about 18 months ago. It can't be that. But maybe it's an irritable bowel syndrome or something like that. And so she prescribed some muscle relaxers for that area. It didn't touch it. It just got worse and it sort of started to migrate just everywhere else. And one day I just went, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I just don't feel good. It's hard to work. It's hard to be a mom. I can barely make it through the day. And when I did that, I felt this big lump in my neck, and which was like a surprise. I didn't remember it being there before. So I went to my primary care physician who immediately ordered an ultrasound followed by a fine needle biopsy. Both of those showed some necrotic tissue, but they did not really point to the real problem. And they took more tissue and they ended up ordering an excision of the whole lymph node because the fine needle biopsy didn't give enough information. So we thought that the excision would help, but even after that, They said, "Hmm, we just don't really know what it is. It's very strange. It's you know has a lot of mutations. It could maybe be lung cancer, breast cancer, ovarian cancer. I mean, they were all over the map. They just didn't know what to do, and kind of makes you lose your faith in the the medical field when they say things like that. Because you do expect them to know what it is, and now I understand why they didn't. But back then I didn't, and so I went through many months of." more intensive uh, checkups or tests to find the source of the cancer because we knew it was only getting worse. They just couldn't find the source. And there were moments where they said, well, maybe it's a cancer of two primaries, or perhaps it's a cancer of an unknown primary, which is almost worse because then you don't exactly know how to treat it. So I had some very invasive GYN exams. I had some lung tissue and abdominal lymph node tissue biopsied. And finally, one of the tests that was ordered was an endoscopy, which I had never had before, even though I had two or three colonoscopies, nobody ever bothered to check from the top down. And I think that's partly because I never had any symptoms like a reflux or trouble swallowing or a cough that didn't go away, didn't have any of those symptoms. I had never taken Tums or an antacid in my life, never needed it. So finally, they ordered that. And as soon as I woke up from the anesthetic, the gastroenterologist that performed the endoscopy said, bingo, I found it. And of course, that's not the bingo anybody wants. He said, I found a tumor and it's a bad one. And you need to get to an oncologist with a specialty because esophageal cancer really has a quite poor prognosis.
0: How many months are we now down the road from the first time you became ill?
1: Oh gosh, over a year. Yeah, I first started feeling those stiff symptoms followed by the joint pain in 2000 in the summer. So now we are in April or May of 2013 with with no esophageal cancer symptoms. And I did find a local oncologist in my area. I live outside the Washington, D.C. area. And I went to a local oncologist, not at a major institution because, I don't know, it seemed close and seemed practical. And I didn't really know the ropes. And he was a lovely gentleman. And he said, I'm really sorry. He said, what I would advise you to do is just enjoy this time with your kids. Typically, we see, you know, 10 to 12 months. So get your paperwork in order and, and enjoy this time. And I started reading more about esophageal cancer and learned that it mostly afflicted, you know, older men that are age 65 and older who, have indulged in smoking and drinking and bad diets, and I had done none of those. So I was actually really almost insulted by this disease. I couldn't believe it had chosen somebody as healthy as I was who had always eaten well and things like that. Don't even drink soda. So anyway, I took that information to heart, and he suggested that I consult with somebody at a larger institution, still local though. And they said, yeah, you've, you've got to get on, you know, systemic chemo right away. That's the only thing that's going to help you feel better to enjoy this time. And I never really liked that concept. Everybody kept saying palliative care is really what you need right now. And the word palliative just upset me very much. I now better understand it. And I know that there's a place for it in everybody's care at some point on their journey. But at that time, because I had watched my mom die. I only associated palliative care with that, and I wasn't going to have that for myself. So I started shopping around because I didn't like his answer, and I went to pretty much every major major medical institution on the East Coast looking for somebody that had seen patients more like me. I really wasn't interested in physicians who had only treated Men that were of a different ethnic background and seventy years old, because I didn't feel like I fit in that bucket. And they kept telling me that the data they had was based on that bucket and data they had really only showed about twelve months. And I said, that's fine. I'm sorry for those men. I really am, but I'm not them, and I need to figure this out because now my kids are eight, ten, and twelve. So I, I passed a lot of people up. And I knew, though, I had to choose somebody. I had to let somebody commence the the chemo. And I ended up at a major institution, a uh, teaching hospital. And I do think it was a good fit for the time being. I think the physician that I saw had the benefit of some global experience, even outside of, of his institution where he was working. And regionally and globally, there are different standards of care. And so he was able to pull from some European standards of care that weren't as typical here in the United States. And I really think that I ended up getting a chemo recipe that actually gave me some time to figure some other things out. I think if I had been on the standard full Fox or something like that, I really don't know that. I would have done that well. I, I received EOX, which is epirubicin, oxaliplatinum, and Zalota. And it was a tough, tough treatment. And I received eight cycles instead of the standard six, but I tolerated it really well. And I really do believe that that recipe bought me the time to research other opportunities, other doctors, other treatments like radiation and things like that. So that did help. And my scans did show residual resolution. And I was thrilled. And I I did start to feel better. I mean, still not right, but I started to feel better. And I, I asked him, I said, do you think we can start to talk about some concurrent radiation? And he said, no, no, my radiation oncologist won't speak to you. You're stage four. We don't do radiation on people that are stage four. We don't do surgery either. And I said, well, why not? I said, there's been some resolution. And he said, that's just not part of the standard of care. Our data shows that it's too hard on you. And most people don't live that much longer anyway. So we just want to make you comfortable and give you some quality time. And I just couldn't understand that because I was willing to try anything. So once again, I started my my process of interviewing other physicians and through a stroke of luck, a very dear friend of mine heard about my diagnosis, which was elusive. Um, when she finally heard that we had a real diagnosis, she said, oh my goodness, I know somebody who's, who specializes in this area. And I went to see that physician and sure enough, he just was wonderful. He, I could tell he wanted to know all about me and all about my lifestyle and about my kids. And he wasn't looking at the textbook data. He just wanted to know what made me tick. And he wanted to know how I tolerated the previous treatment. And he said, well, you know, you really are on the right thing and let's have a few more cycles and we'll re-image and then we'll talk about radiation or whatever's next, but we have to get you there. And I always really appreciated that he kept those doors open because that's all a patient wants who has been given a terminal diagnosis. You just want a door open. And I really believe that that makes a huge difference in survival and quality of life and hope and it just gives you a reason to get up the next day because you know if you can make it through the next cycle and the next cycle and rub your your charms in the morning maybe maybe the imaging will actually back it up too and it did the imaging showed just enough uh, resolution that my new doctor was willing to give radiation a try to further reduce the tumor burden And all of this was a step to help me get towards something else, whether it was an endoscopic mucosal resection. Surgery didn't really come up, but it was in my mind. And you know, every step of the way to me was to get towards that goal because I had done enough reading and educating myself. I knew that really my only chance at eradicating and outliving this disease was to get it out, but I had to make it to surgery. So that's that's kind of how I got to where it got interesting. Now, there's some
0: things that disturb me. You live in a country that has, by reputation, the best healthcare in Absolutely. the world. You have the best, uh, certainly at the tertiary care level, you have the best of the best. And yet, here you are as a patient, going from doctor to doctor, looking for an answer, looking for somebody who wasn't going to give up hope on exactly. You. And the one person who was in your corner was you. You were not prepared to give up on yourself. Absolutely not. That's the disturbing part of the story, because you would not be here to tell your story if you had not been that tenacious woman who is determined to see see this thing through and get, as you say, the cancer out before. Yes. before. And you knew that once you'd achieved that, you stood some sort of chance. Absolutely. So there's something in you that actually made you much more likely to get to this point in the journey. If someone is listening to you at this point and they find themselves, heaven forbid, in such a situation, what would you be saying to that person?
1: I would say educate yourself as much as you can. Every appointment you have, whether the physician gives you five minutes or 50 minutes, You need to be prepared to ask questions and ask the hard questions and the embarrassing questions and the yucky questions that nobody wants to talk about. You got to ask the questions. And um, I stayed up all night reading. I call it like the dark web. I really looked under every rock. I didn't care if the sources were credible or not. I wanted to see what was going on out in the world in this disease area so that I could ask questions that would let the physician know that I was tuned in. And I needed them to be on the same page. And I really do believe that that helped because they couldn't dismiss me, that I wasn't going anywhere. And I think they eventually started to appreciate my determination. And I was able to throw some questions at them that really did give them pause. But walking through some of the answers or the possibilities enlightened us both together. And I think that's what helped us forge a better team.
0: I mean, looking at you now, you look really well, which is wonderful. It is very, very wonderful. So clearly something happened at the end of that point in the journey through to where you are now. What was that?
1: So the journey continued and it was quite long with many hills and valleys. After radiation and continued residual resolution, I, I felt better. And I said, let's see what we can do to my doctor. And he said, well, we'll try an endoscopic mucosal resection. So I was really excited. I thought, this is going to do it. I've made it this far. This is great. So my gastroenterologist, who I had become quite friendly with, we scheduled it and went under. And doesn't take super long. He was all prepared to get it out too. But when I was awakened, the first person I saw, of course, was... The gastroenterologist, and he said, I'm sorry I couldn't get it. It was just too deep. And uh, I don't know what to tell you. So that sort of took me back to square one. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, oh my goodness, I've gone through all of this and now we don't have an answer or a next step. And my husband was there and he knew how upset I was. And the nurse came in and she said, You know, when you're feeling fine after you eat your crackers and all of that, we'll escort you to the exit. You know, you have to go out in a wheelchair. I said, I'm not ready to go yet. I said, there's no way. I don't have an answer. And I actually left that area of the hospital. And I walked over to my radiation oncologist, who is the person that I was referring to earlier, who actually really saw the life in me and not just the cancer. And I walked over. I patiently waited until he could see me for a few minutes. And of course, he was like, what are you doing here? And I said, it didn't work. I said, we have to figure out something else. And he said, don't worry. He's like, I have a few more tools in my toolbox and we're, we're going to discuss them. And once again, it's that hope that, that you know, leaving a little crack in the door that just makes such a huge difference. And uh, he said, I'm going to introduce you to a surgeon here. He said, this is a conversation that we probably shouldn't even be having. We don't do this for patients. It's just... The morbidity is quite high on an esophagectomy, but he said, you know, if there's anybody that could handle it, it's probably you. And so if this is something you want to talk about, we will. So I did meet the surgeon who was just the most wonderful, caring person in the world. And he also reiterated that we should not be having this conversation, but we will because he knew I wasn't going to leave. And uh, he said, you know, we're going to schedule it for down the road because the radiation needs time to clear up. You get some scar tissue, but... I don't know, I guess you can't wait too long because the scar tissue also hardens too much. So there's a sweet spot that you have to schedule the surgery within. And we waited for about six weeks. And within those six weeks, I had another scan. And unfortunately, uh, the one of the next scans showed some uh, opacities in my lungs. And it looked like it was really going the wrong way. And we did do a biopsy and it came back inconclusive, just like all of the previous biopsies had. And again, I was like, what are we going to do? Like, this just can't be happening. So my surgeon agreed to do a sort of a unconventional start to the esophagectomy, which is normally a long, involved surgery. He said, this time around though, I'm going to go in and I'm going to take a frozen biopsy of your lung. And if it looks like it's malignant, game over, you know, we're done. I'm going to close you up and we're going to about systemic care again and if the if the tissue looks okay we can proceed. So I had in my mind when I went in for surgery that morning that if it was short, that was a bad thing and if it was quite long, that was a good thing. So 15 and a half hours later I asked my doctor, I said what time is it and you know he told me how much time it had passed and you know I just knew that that was that was the ticket. I had made it. And, um, you know, of course, it was a really tough recovery, but because of my overall fitness, I think that helped a lot. I think I was able to get up and walk and get out of bed and things like that far sooner. But of course, you can't have any food by mouth for two weeks. And it had already been several weeks before, you know, that I had, had only been on a very limited diet. So it takes a long time to build that strength back up. But I knew that that was what was going to help me turn the corner. And it did. And I was so very grateful that, that these physicians saw the possibility and gave me the chance and allowed me to, to ask questions of them. And it was, it was really a team effort. And that's what it takes. And like I said, the recovery wasn't easy. I had some cleanup chemo, uh, which was really tough on a whole new system. And I also was receiving Herceptin at that time because after the surgery, it turned out that I was HER2 positive, which I had not been before. I'm not sure how that happens. So we thought that we had it licked. And a year later, scan that I still received very frequently at that time, like every two and a half months or so, one of my doctors was reading the scan results to me and he said, it looks fine, Dana. And I just didn't like the tone of his voice. I said, what do you mean by fine? I don't like that word. Fine is usually not good. It's not fine. Like food is not fine. Curtains are not fine. I don't like fine for my scan either. So we we dove in a little deeper. And sure enough, a little area that made him scratch his head actually turned out to be the worst case that he was trying to avoid thinking about and caused us to do another biopsy. I had an axillary node that was positive for esophageal cancer. So it had escaped. It just happens. That's what happens when I guess it's stage four and popped up again. And of course, you know, that's extreme disappointment after a year of thinking you're, you're home free. And I was preparing myself to go back on systemic chemo because it happens. At this point, it was like my third round of chemo. And at the 11th hour, my physicians had called me after a tumor board meeting. I was the topic of discussion like every week for some reason, you know, for years. And so once again, I was at the top of the list and my team called and they said, we think that there could be a possibility that immunotherapy could work for you. Would you be willing to try it if we do some quick testing? And at that point, I was like, if you think it'll work or have any hope, then I'm all in. So they tested me for microsatellite instability. And sure enough, I came back as MSI high. And that was interesting, not only because it allowed me to be a candidate for immunotherapy, which was not yet FDA approved for esophageal cancer. Actually, it was just recently approved, but this was five years ago. But it answered all those questions about my high mutation burden of all of the previous biopsies that nobody ever could explain until now. So it was really great to know why I had had all of these issues. And we didn't know if we could get the immunotherapy, but one of the great things about living in the United States, you can apply for compassionate use care. And my physicians lost no time in doing that. And I was able to receive one of the drugs that is now widely used for for many cancers or for many uh, indications of solid tumors, and uh, still, if I'm correct, I don't believe it is approved for esophageal adenocarcinoma. I do believe it is approved for esophageal um, squamous cell, but it doesn't really matter because it did the trick. And I have been on it for several years, and so grateful to have it. I'm grateful for everybody that really opened the door and and. You know, just kind of looked under the rocks for the opportunities. So that's that's how I got here.
0: Dana Dayton, you're a very special person. You've survived something quite extraordinary. Where did you find the strength over those years to to do this?
1: Uh, yeah. Thank you very much for saying that. I appreciate that. I think it comes from a couple of places. Uh, you know, when you're a parent you have to be there for your kids. And my children, my three kids were still quite young. I had two girls and a boy and I couldn't imagine them not having a mom. And I think that was a very intense feeling because I lost my mom when I was 30. So of course I had much more time with her than than I thought they might with me, but still I know what it's like to lose a parent. And when my mom was diagnosed with her colon cancer, she was stage four as well. And she only lived another six weeks, not just because of the cancer, but because the surgery to remove it didn't go well. She became septic. And that's actually what killed her, even though she was she already had metastatic disease. But as a physician, you know, when somebody has sepsis, it gets ugly very quickly, especially when the root of it is abdominal. And the last couple of weeks were horrifying. And You see things and smell things and hear things that you can't ever, ever, ever forget. And at that time, when I was about 30, I didn't really know how to negotiate the healthcare system. I had never had to do it. I tried my very best to improve her care, but it was too late. However, what I did learn was the importance of advocating for a loved one or advocating for yourself. And she died. But I know that at the end, even though I wasn't able to change the outcome, I think I made a difference in her care. Mm -hmm. And that's what mattered.
0: I can see that. And I can see how your strength helped your mom and helped you to live with that experience. But when you're suffering this yourself and you're Mm -hmm. tired and you've got iron deficiency and you've got all manner of other things and the fatigue mm-hmm. and the the nausea and all that goes with, with having chemotherapy and, and surgery and other things. Where do you find the strength to keep on keeping on?
1: Uh, you know, I guess I have to give credit to, to my family. I just come from strong people that are very stoic and determined. And sometimes those Qualities aren't really attributes at work or at school. You know, sometimes it can be read as a stubbornness that is negative. But when it comes to your health and survival, you have to turn all of those levers to help.
0: I can imagine there would be some doctors who would have been very compassionate and concerned and see it from your perspective, and others who would have been completely exasperated that you were not hearing them saying the kind of things absolutely. the messages that you want they wanted you to hear, but somebody made a huge difference and I've actually written this down your radiation oncologist made a big yes. difference
1: absolutely amazing person very special man. even
0: when you walk into his office having just had an operation to say it didn't work what's next I love that yeah
1: I'm sure he, I'm sure he was like we're not on the schedule today but yeah. You know, we, we had built a relationship, though, where we could be very open with each other. And yeah. to this day, we're very good friends. And I can tell you, I'm not the only one that received that treatment because I watched him with other people and yeah. I watched his staff with other people. And it's a culture of compassion and constant improvement that drives that And you just don't find that everywhere. I mean, there are a lot of amazing physicians, but not everybody really is meant to work with patients on the front lines. And that's okay because their expertise is needed in the lab, researching the cells and things like that. I had some physicians that never looked me in the eye. They'd look around me like at my husband or sort of talk over me. And that was very discouraging. I had one physician that told me it wasn't my fault. And I'm like, I know it's not my fault, but that's not what we're here to talk about. Was so. that
0: born out of frustration with himself or herself to say, why don't you understand? I have nothing to offer you. Or was it something more than that? Was it the sense that they were not able to tell you what they in their hearts believed was was right for you?
1: Yeah, you know, I'll never know. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll never know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does take a very special Person to communicate with a patient that has a very dire diagnosis. And it's a very delicate balance of telling the truth and providing hope and also looking outside the box and outside the the textbook data. You know, that's, I think that's the thing that bothers me the most um, is that people with any condition are often lumped with the other millions of people but you really have to look deep into the person and find out what drives them do they exercise do they eat well do they come from a family of of health or a family that has been exposed to certain environmental factors do they value certain things in life their work their family and things like that and for me i valued all of those and not only did i value them i really felt like i had to keep working and i guess that is something that was sort of equal in it giving me hope, but also it was a burden. I, I felt like I need to keep working. I don't feel well, but I have to do it. But you know what? It gave me something to get up and do every day. And I feel like if I could ever give other patients a recommendation on how to control their, their situation a little bit, just a little bit, I would say get up every morning, no matter how bad you feel, And you make a promise to yourself that you're going to do something. And that might just be carrying the laundry up the steps. It might be unloading the dishwasher. It might be taking a walk that is a short walk, a mile, or it may be a longer walk. that's several miles. But you have to decide to do something every day. And for me, there were days I didn't want to do it. But I'm the type of person that you never do less today than what you did yesterday. Or I can't go to sleep at night. So that was my mantra and it was really hard sometimes but i do believe that that gave me not only the physical strength but the mental strength and i also meditated a lot through some of the aches and pains because sometimes the physical activity didn't really help that so i had to find a way to sort of suppress them a little bit
0: your story highlights the fact that there's hope even in the darkest of places absolutely provided that you are prepared to walk with the person, whether that's yourself or whether that's your patient, walk with that person through that dark valley to get to the other side. Right?
1: Absolutely. It's all about teamwork. And if you don't have a, a somebody else that's on your team, you can't do it alone because patients do have to rely on family and physicians and friends. You might not want to, but you have to be willing to be vulnerable too.
0: Hmm. Dana, where can people find you? Where can they find out about you? Where can they find out about the many other things that you do?
1: Well, I work at Inspire, which is a community uh, for people to share their stories about their own health journeys. And I found Inspire because I was looking for somebody who had a journey similar to mine. And at that time, nobody else did. So when I finally stumbled upon Inspire and found out that that's exactly what they do, they connect patients that either have similar situations or are looking for somebody that can connect on a, a similar level. I just thought, this is magical. This this could have saved me earlier. Maybe, who knows? But I think it's really important for be, people to be able to connect. And all humans need, need a form of social connection. So you can find me there. I also am a very proud board member of the Esophageal Cancer Action Network. And you can find us at ecan.org, E-C-A-N.org. And of course, I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn and everything else. So, I'm always happy to talk to other patients. I really enjoy being able to share what I call tips to just survive because I would really like to help people be able to struggle less than I did. So, I think that's really really important. And you know, one one of the things in addition to what I already shared about getting up and doing something every day, another promise I made to myself was that I'm going to get up and I'm going to dress like I want to feel. I don't want to dress like a patient because then I'm going to be treated like a patient, which I felt might be substandard. So I decided I'm going to walk in and I'm going to feel good about myself no matter how bad I might feel on the inside.
0: Jenna Dayton, your story is one of hope, courage, and resilience. Thank you so much for sharing so much of yourself.
1: Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to chat with you and I hope that we get to meet in person someday.
0: The Journal of Health Design Better Health by Design. Visit us at the